Welcome to Conversations with Women and Hollywood. I'm Melissa Silverstein, your host. We talk with the women creatives who are making things happen in the film industry. Women in Hollywood educates, advocates, and agitates for gender equality in Hollywood and the global film industry. For daily updates on what is going on, please read us at blog.womeninhollywood.com. Also make sure to check out our resources at womeninhollywood.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud. Today's guest is Lydia Dean Pilcher. She is currently the executive producer of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which premieres on HBO this Saturday night, 8 p.m., April 22nd. She has been a longtime collaborator with Marinaire, and their most recent film was Queen of Cotsway. Welcome, Lydia. Hi, how are you? I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about, you know, being a producer, but also let's start off with The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, best-selling a nonfiction book, many, many years on, uh, you know, years actually on the bestseller list, right? That's correct. Well, yeah, a total of 75 weeks over six years. Jeez. So talk about how you became involved in this project. Well, I have worked at HBO um, during my career for, uh, well, really since the beginning of my career. And I think this is the eighth movie that I've produced with HBO films. So I have a long relationship. I you know, find myself drawn to the stories that, um, you know, they're interested in telling primarily because they relate to contemporary issues and um, they're usually character driven. Um, Both of those things appeal to me as a storyteller. And uh, my son had read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks one summer when he was interning at the Multiple Sclerosis Center in New York. And there were patients in the front of the clinic, and the research was happening in the back of the clinic, and they were working with HeLa cells. And he happened to be reading Rebecca's book for school uh, at the time, and he, you know, called me and said, Mom, you know, you've got to read this book. It's amazing. Um, and, and I read it, and it was the first time that this story had hit my radar. I think a, a similar thing happens with everybody who's involved with the movie and really whoever has read the book because this story was really buried um, in history until Rebecca came along and and unearthed it. Um, And she worked, you know, very closely with Deborah Lacks, Henrietta's daughter, to um, go on the journey to really discover, you know, who Henrietta the person was in the context of a story that is, you know, in the middle of a huge um, controversy of racial and um, medical ethics and um, injustices that, you know, are deep-rooted in in our society. So you bring it to HBO, or was it already at HBO? Oprah was the first person who brought the book to HBO. And uh, I think, you know, she had been a journalist, uh, broadcast journalist in Baltimore, so she knew Baltimore very well. and. Um, but didn't know this story. Okay. And no. and I read that she did not want to be in it at first? I, I don't think that was her initial interest. You know, she had been a lead in a couple of films, but this is the first time she's been a lead in a movie since Beloved. And uh, she definitely is in a place in her life where she's interested in exploring um, her acting artistic talent. And 
it was really George Wolfe that convinced her that she should play this role, which is, is, is a very complex, complicated role, not an, not an easy one to just step into. She turned everything off in her world, you know, two months before we started filming and really, you know, immersed herself in the preparation to play, to play the character of Deborah Lax. And did um, you bring George Wolf in, or was he part of the HBO piece before you got involved? Or how? Tell me how it came together like that. Yeah, George. George had directed a movie called Lackawanna Blues in mm-hmm. HBO, and it was at the same time that Mira Nair and I had had a film happening at HBO called Hysterical Blindness. And so he he was coming on board as the director, and I came on at the same time. So I was very excited when I saw the movie, too. You know, the first card is a cinema mosaic production, and that's your company. And so that makes me feel great. And I thought, I know that woman. So talk a little bit about your company, when you started it, what is the intention for cinema mosaic? Where does that name come from? Just like your producing life. Yeah. Well, I formed cinema mosaic in 2003. And I wanted to have a company that focused on independent film. I was already aligned with Mira Nair as a director, and we weren't forming the company together, but we have continued to work together, and um, my company has produced all of her movies um, since Mississippi Masala, which is about 11 movies. Um, but I was interested in Working in the independent realm, um, I'm very motivated by female-driven content. I'm very motivated by stories about the world, and I, I really enjoy working internationally. So that was really the purpose of my company, and, in, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of, of working with a lot of talented directors. After the Great Recession, when the film industry and the entertainment industry as a whole was, was – um, really impacted because of the recession, because of, um, you know, because of piracy and the collapse of the DVD market, I made a decision to start working with emerging talent and um, have had a really great experience um, working with new directors and sort of bringing the experience of my career to, to newer careers. So, you know, we produced Cutie and the Boxer, which was nominated for an Academy Award. We produced uh, The Lunchbox uh, by Ritesh Batra which was a French-German U.S. co-production, um, Sony Classics distributed. Uh, we did The Sisterhood of Night with Karen Wechter. And we're currently producing a film, we're in post-production now, um, a film called Radium Girls, uh, which is a 1925 uh, story about the uh, watch-style painters uh, who were tragically poisoned um, in the factory during World War II. I read that script. I really liked it. Yeah, we're we're really happy with it. I think it's about um, who who directed it. Who's in it? Uh, Virginia Moeller is our is our director, and uh, the actors are two, the leads are two young women, Abby Quinn, who's in a movie coming out this summer called Landline, and mm-hmm. Joey King, who is, Joey has been a she's got a big uh, summer movie like scary movie. I just saw a preview for this uh, yesterday. Yeah, Joey. Joey is is somebody who has been acting since she was a child. She was in the Ramona and Visa stories, and she is now uh, seventeen and uh, really starting to take the screen by storm. 
They both are. They're both terrific. They play sisters in the movie who work at the factory. And it's a story of female empowerment when the girls realize what is happening at the hands of American Radium and they decide to take on the system. That sounds fantastic. And I'm sure that these directors, uh, I mean, you've worked with a lot of young women too, are just blown away by how you mentor them. But it's like, it's more deliberate than mentoring because you're like, really guiding them so talk a little bit about that part of it well i think i I think on the one hand you know it it's a very complicated endeavor you know that that making movies and you know and navigating the the artistic world the world of the craft the Mm -hmm. business world of you know green lighting something raising the money uh, the marketing and distribution which you know frankly, has become a whole new level of producing for independent filmmakers, given the disruption that's been happening in our business. Um, but I think coming out of film school, there's a there's a real passion that young filmmakers have. And, you know, in terms of skills and strengths, I mean, we are essentially an apprentice business. So you, mm-hmm. you gain you gain your skills by, you know, practicing your craft and doing what you do. So for a movie like Radium Girls, in, in this new kind of world that we live in, how how are you able to raise raise the money to do this? And uh, you and I have had many conversations about it, but, like, would a female-centric movie like this, is it harder to raise the money? Talk a little bit about kind of the process that goes into putting something with new talent to, you know, young women on the cusp, how, you, how you're able to package that. Well, this is an interesting area for me, which has become a real focus of uh, my life, because over, over the years of my career in producing female-driven content and producing for a lot of women directors, I was very conscious of the female audience in terms of who was seeing our work, but I was also becoming increasingly conscious of the way the way these audiences, these female audiences were undervalued and frankly often not recognized by right. by the, you know, Hollywood system. And I think it started it has started to change with the the noise of gender equality that is that is, you know, on the landscape right now. And it's a result of the data that's coming forward. I mean the the digital age of technology and the amount of information that we have available all of a sudden is illuminating the old tropes and myths that people continue to live with as stereotypical, but the reality out there has shifted. It's changed, and and the business is not keeping pace with the change. So this is something that, you know, I learned, I think I, I sort of cut my teeth and fought the fight and learned a lot about it on the, on the movie Sisterhood of Night because it was a younger teen girl movie and that was a market that had been really pretty much completely ignored um, Mm -hmm. in the theatrical realm and and it was only when the hunger games and the twilight movies and these bigger films with with younger girl stars came forward that even the system started to acknowledge um and now you know now we see with beauty and the beast that the studios are happily embracing the young female audience and do you think that'll have a trickle-down effect more into the indie market where you'll, you know, might be seen as a little bit easier to raise the funding of this for these movies? 
Yes, I, I, yes, definitely. And I also think that the spirit of this kind of fourth wave of feminism is that females are supporting females. And so, for instance, the, the financing for Radium Girls, we, Jenny had received a Sloan grant. Um, she and Brittany Shaw wrote the first um, incarnation of the script, and they received a, a $100,000 Sloan grant. Um, because of the science-related themes of the movie. Right. <clears throat> but after that, there were a couple of more small grants that came in. All of the equity funding for the film, and the film is just under a million dollars, is female-funded. Wow. And and these were, I b- real, truly believe, you know, these were women who were very driven by the story of these young factory girls and the story of... of empowerment and what they, you know, what the arc that they went through from being girls who were, you know, wild imaginations, had their own aspirations that may or may not have been attainable in their time. But when the hard knocks of the real world were in front of them, um, they stepped up, you Mm -hmm. know, to express their voice, to to assert their rights. Wow. And you've learned a lot about also like how to get the movie out into the world. You know, once you once you finish it, it has to be born, you know, and people have to see these movies and find them. And and has that for your work, has that changed at all? Have you seen the marketing evolve? People understand more about how to market female centric content? Yeah, I, I, I definitely I definitely think that's true. I mean, what what's interesting is that. We, you know, we, women are still facing, it's what Stacey Smith from USC at Annenberg calls the fiscal cliff. Right. And, you know, so there are a higher percentage of women succeeding in filmmaking at lower level budgets. Right. And as the budgets get bigger, and you can see when you talk about a very low level percentage of directors, you know, if you're looking at the top 100 grossing films or the top 250 grossing films, I mean, you're talking you know, you're talking single digits, right? But the reality is that many more women are directing than that because they're working at lower or mid-level ranges. Right. um, If you look at the independent statistics, you know, you're, you know, you're talking over, you know, a quarter of all the directors and documentaries, documentaries has always been approaching, you know, 50% because women just have greater access you know, to, to that level of budget. Mm-hmm. So I think when you, when you move the conversation into the marketing and the distribution realm, uh, what you're talking about is a system, um, a homogenous point of view system that is run by a, a smaller group of people who like to green light the movies that they want to see in the theaters. And this is largely male and it's largely white. What you see in this larger system is a marketing that is broad and is not sort of taking into effect the nuances that that people are developing as as an overall audience because we now have social media and Mm -hmm. the audiences are hyper-connected and we participate and, and we talk back. And I think the studios have been slow to turn their ship around on this front. So if they're doing a big a bigger budget 
a film like Beauty and the Beast, and it's and it and it's more commercial, and that it's reaching a broad spectrum. And you know, you have 50% of the audience as women. It can be marketed in a certain way, but if you have a film like Queen of Catway, which is a movie that Mira Nair and I directed about a young African chess champion, um, that that movie can't be marketed the same way. Mm-hmm. It needs it needs to be introduced to core audiences who are going to identify, you know, with this story first um, on a very personal level and platform out the way that all independents handle their films. If you look at a company like A24, if you look at what the way Fox Searchlight markets their movies, there's a platform where you create, you, you know, you're, you're feeding what is really a film culture. The mm-hmm. film culture is where people talk about movies and, and people exchange ideas and people are provoked and inspired. And I think, you know, for the work that I do, this distribution in that way is really critical. And I think it is, um, you know, something that hopefully, hopefully the studios will either begin to do more of or, or else they'll stay just making their tentpole films the way they do. Yeah, it doesn't seem that they're moving more towards, it seems, uh, towards more independent-type movies. It seems that they're moving really further away from those, the studios. We'll see. I mean, one of the things that's happening, I, and I really feel like when I, you know, I, I really I use the word disruption, and I don't use it lightly. I, I really believe that the globalization of the world and the kind of stories that the world wants to see you know, are, are not these homogenized stories. Right. You know? So so the balance, you know, when you and I were growing up, I mean, the balance of a U.S. film's business was domestic. It right. was It was American audiences. That is not the case anymore. Right. The, the U.S. box office is one smaller piece because but, yeah. the, weight, the weight of the box office has become international. So it's I mean, flipped. 70-30. Yeah. So the studios, you know, especially in the collapse of the DVD market and pirating and all of this, the studios are desperately seeking ways to be more relevant in the international marketplace. Yeah, I mean, this past weekend, the Fast and the Furious, whatever, 17, 18, I don't even know what number it is, made, you know, half a billion dollars overseas, global over the weekend. And it's just like that was, I think, the largest global opening. So it's mind boggling. But you and I work on a project uh, called the Ms. Factor Toolkit with your work at the PGA Women's Impact Network. And do you think this toolkit has helped people use, you know, make the case that, you know, women-centric movies, women-directed movies, fair, targeted at women, is economically viable? Yes, I, I think it has. And I think that it also, I mean, one of, one of the reasons, you know, that really prompted us to do it was to debunk the myths about the commerciality of female filmmaking, which has happened. And we just, uh, in looking at the stats between 2015 and 2016, we noticed that there had been a 7% increase of, of leading women on the screen, right. which is, you know, not all the categories are making that kind of leap or that kind of jump, but that to me, that did seem an obvious one because movies like Bridesmaids, movies like Trainwreck, which are led by women, these are big commercial hits. We've got the, you know, we've got animated features that are huge commercial hits, um, and then again, The Hunger Games, The Twilights, all of those. So, so that 
seemed to me like, yeah, that that should be a number where we're seeing a big, big increase. So that was satisfying to see that jump from 2015 to 2016. Do you think um, we're, at, we're at a point where it's no longer going to be one-off and people will just be like, oh, well, you know, this movie did well, and but, you know, we're not going to get into the business of women because X, Y, or Z, you know, we still don't trust the women's market. How do we become a, a trend? Well, I think we're very focused right now on the decision-making of the entertainment industry and how that happens and the significance of having diversity at the top of the, at the, top of the chain because that's the way diverse voices are able to come forward. Yeah, but I look at the people who were just hired for new jobs at the studios that were open, and there are people who ran other studios and who, you know, no longer were running them. So still the top bosses are pretty much guys, and they're well, pretty much... I, well, you're, lo- you're, lo- you're looking at the, at, the ver- at the very top big studio network, which, is, which they're really competing, you know, with each other, and they're looking for people who you know, have had that experience right. um, in that realm. But I, but, but I think you can look at other successes, like, you know, we, we have the first African-American woman who's the head of ABC. The right. first, first time a woman has been the head of a broadcast network. And there are, I, you know, it's, we're not there yet, for sure. We're not, but, there, we're not there yet. But I think that there is an undeniable shift in the democratic the demographic landscape. Okay. You know, people talk about, you know, the minority majority that is coming in, you know, 2040 or 2050, whenever, whatever data you're, you happen to be looking at. Right. But the, you know, we are headed toward a time where the multinational component of America is, is inevitable. Right. And, you know, we, we will hit a time when the, when, we're going to be looking at a very, very diverse population that, you know, the inter- entertainment industry will have no choice but to, but to serve. And I, I think the question is, <laughs> can, we, can we just get there quicker by, you know, by sort of looking at who we all are as human beings and, and looking at storytelling in a more creative and open way? Absolutely. So another project that you've been involved with since the beginning is Reframe Initiative that comes out of the Sundance Women and uh, Women in Film LA. Can you just talk a little bit about that for us? Yes. The Reframe Initiative is was um, initiated by uh, Sundance Women in Film Initiative, um, Kathy Schulman at LA Women in Film, Carrie Putnam at the Sundance Institute, and this initiative brought together stakeholders in the Hollywood community, and um, they brought about 50 of us into a room um, about 18 months ago, and it was very, very interesting because they used a lot of the design thinking um, that the Fortune 500 companies use when they're trying Mm -hmm. to solve a problem. And they, so they brought people in who didn't know our industry, but they just knew how to navigate a design thinking think tank. And it was a fascinating process. We were in this tank for two days, and everybody had to put their cell phones away. And, you know, we had some heads of studios, some heads of networks, partners of talent agencies. There were prominent directors and writers and producers. And 
it was it was fascinating. You know, it was fascinating to sort of see. I mean, I think that the real strength of Reframe is that these people are part of it and are are actually entrenched in the very system that we're talking about changing. So there are several initiatives that were announced around Oscar time this year, and they're gonna they're you know the idea is to go right to the top. And, and what pieces are you most optimistic about related to Reframe? Well, I think the, there, are, there are three components. One is a gender parity stamp, and there's a, there's a point system that a film would take a look at in, as they go into production, and, and then the parity stamp would, you know, be <coughs> certified at the end of a production. This would be something that really would be a device for calling attention to the balance of, of gender in a production right. in front of the camera, behind the camera. Like the, uh, like BAFTA has the, you know, or B, uh, BFI has the three ticks, you know, behind the camera, in front of the camera, and the crew kind of stuff? Yes. Okay. And, and then another component is the is a sponsorship, mentorship program, because I think we all know how important mentorship is. But the sponsorship component is even um, stronger. Uh-huh. So it's it's an it's an, it's not an idea of mentoring someone who isn't in a job. It's about sponsoring somebody in a job and then furthering and then furthering their ability to succeed at that job. So that is a second prong in the program. And then the third aspect is to 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 raise the question of bias in organizations and in corporate cultures, and to look at ways to inc- make inclusive consciousness more available within the system and there there's a there's kind of a a toolkit of recommended strategies that corporations can use and i you know a lot of a lot of companies have diversity reps now that are that are focused on this but it's about opening the conversation up in a bigger way and acknowledging acknowledging that people have racial anxiety or anxiety about sexism and finding the ways to be able to talk about it so that people can hear each other. Mm-hmm. That sounds, I'm optimistic about it, I have to say. So what's next for you? You have uh, Harriet Lacks this weekend. You're working on post-production of Radium Girls. What What's in your hopper for the future? Um, I've been developing a television series that is centered around a story of immigrant women mm. uh, who work in a bakery. And uh, I, I was interested in the idea uh, primarily because of my interest in different cultures and what we can learn from lifestyles and traditions that are different from our own. But, you know, since this president was elected and the question of immigration reform and the role of immigrants in American culture has been called into question in a different way. I'm, ex- I'm even more excited about telling this story. So it's a, it's a dramatic series, which will be exciting. I don't think there's anything on the air like it. And have you, do you have a network that you're working with, or is it something that you're going to sell? You're going to sell? Right. We're, we're taking it out this spring, so stay Fantastic. tuned. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Women in Hollywood. For more podcasts and daily updates, please go to blog.womeninhollywood.com. For resources, to subscribe to our weekly newsletter 
and to help support the work of Women in Hollywood, please go to our website, womenandhollywood.com. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Adam Shartoff. Music is by Laura Karpman.